You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we want to ask a uh, quite simple question, uh, but one that is going to give us a lot of insight, I think, uh, both into history, into, into the Bible, into our worldview. It's going to be very exciting. We're asking the question, who was ancient man? Who was ancient man? Now, if you've been with us in this uh, study so far on the biblical origin of humanity, uh, we've already been given a bit of a clue, a bit of an insight into this. We've seen that we were made a little lower than the angels, not a little higher than the apes, uh, as would seem to be suggested by the um, evolutionary uh, worldview. And so uh, when we consider the question, who is ancient man? Well, we have to start at the very beginning, of course. Um, we're made in the image of God, right? And we dealt with that in one of the early episodes in this series. Um, uh, who, who, who are we? Who is humanity? Are we, are we anything uh, significant? And so we, we dealt with that question uh, earlier, and we said, yes, we are made in the image of God. We're different. Uh, even in the past few weeks, we've been looking at things such as the anatomy of man. We've seen that we were most certainly uh, created from a scientific perspective distinctly from uh, the apes, from uh, from chimpanzees. They, they, uh, they, the current mainstream thinking is that our closest ancestor um, is a is a chimpanzee, and that we we share ninety eight to ninety nine percent similarity with them. Of course, we've given some evidence to suggest otherwise that the similarity may only be between eighty six to eighty nine percent at the highest, and 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 even at that, that's somewhere on the order of four hundred billion. DNA letter differences. And so that's a pretty big deal. That's no small difference. So uh, we've seen for various reasons that we are most certainly to be considered distinct. Uh, we've even seen that we have some similarities with what has been um, thought of in the past as being a, a common ancestor between us and an ape. And just because of that relationship uh, does not mean that the evidence has to point to a story where somehow we are uh, related to apes. For example, um, the Neanderthal man for, is one really good example of, um, of what we know now to have just been a human being. Uh, some have separated this out into a subcategory, right? So whereas we are homo sapiens, um, they would uh, either call them homo sapiens as well, or they would call them homeo, uh, excuse me, homo sapien um, neanderthalensis, right? So they'll add a subgroup to that. And so um, that's one way of doing it maybe. But, but we've seen that there are some other uh, groups of, of, of fossil humans that we found that we fit into. That, but then we've also seen the clear distinctions um, between what we are as, as, as humans and, um, and what would be considered apes from a design perspective, from an anatomy perspective. We've looked at it in multiple different ways. And so we want to move the question to a new level now. So now we want to ask, really, who was ancient man? Was ancient man simply a genius, or was it was ancient man primitive? Um, you know, we should be able to see uh, some some common sense evidence from the past to help us verify which story is true. If 
the creation story is true on one hand, then we should expect to see some pretty intelligent uh, ancient people. And this is evidenced by the fact that uh, the Bible records almost as much time from Genesis 12 through the end of the Bible uh, as was recorded in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. So um, we've had quite a bit of time since then, somewhere on the order of 40, 43 to 4,500 years. Um, but, but, but there was a time period of close to 2,000 years or so, um, 1900, 2000, I believe somewhere in there, uh, between the creation and, and the flood. So somewhere in that range. Okay. And of course we can't be too dogmatic on that anyway. All right. So, so somewhere in that range. And, um, so we would expect to see, especially having been made in the image of God, um, humanity having lived and had uh, much experience, I mean, uh, upwards of 900 and, and close to 1,000 years old, um, we would expect to see some pretty, uh, I think, intelligent um, uh, things. Or uh, Let's just be vague for now, but, but we would expect to see uh, some intelligence, okay, to be found um, way back that far. And... Maybe to add another interesting dynamic, I think we could expect to see intelligence that did not rely on uh, technology as we know it today. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but, but we tend to associate intelligence with who's got the fastest computer. <laughs> you know, and honestly, um, I might be the most uh, uh, guilty of that because. I'm an IT guy. I work on computers for a living, and so I'm thinking um, that to be to be uh, to be intelligent means to be more technologically advanced. That's kind of the way I naturally think, um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. And we're going to see what I mean by that here in a minute. Well, before we dive in, uh, a couple things. First of all, I just wanted to say that I am extremely excited to be uh, recording the thirtieth episode of this podcast. Um, it just makes me so excited to think about that. Uh, I, when I started this thing, I honestly, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Uh, I didn't, have the best plan uh, put place uh, put in place um, to get this thing rolling. I, I kind of was going week to week, thinking, "Man, what what am I going to do?" So I started planning it out, and it it, it went pretty good. I haven't um, pod faded it, okay, in, in the podcast world. That uh, typically uh, most new podcasts don't make it past episode seven. So uh, there's kind of an interesting fact for you. So um, I'm I'm excited about the fact that we've made it all the way through through thirty episodes, and we continue to go strong. And, uh, and thank you for sticking with me. Uh, our downloads are doing great. We're on an upward rise, obviously, uh, as we add more content, more people see it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast with others uh, if it's been helpful to you. So uh, that that's one bit of, uh, of exciting news, just that we're on episode 30 of the podcast. And um, I think uh, we've got many more to, to come, all right? Um, something else I wanted to uh, bring to your attention is to uh, don't forget about the Creation Academy, uh, jointca.co, jointca.co. I want you to go to the Creation Academy. Uh, we launched it a few uh, episodes back. We announced it, and, um, and, and what it is, we're, we're probably going to be bringing it to market somewhere around 2019. It is a interactive subscription membership website where we plan to have 
have awesome creation content, um, awesome video content, awesome um, guided and directed learning. We've got course curriculums already planned out, ready to go. We've been talking with people. Uh, I'm telling you, it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. We've decided to offer it for just $6.99 per month, $6.99 per month. And I think that's a very fair price um, to get uh, what, what I'm going to consider some of the best creation content you can get. Uh, and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying that just to, um, you know, to toot any horns or anything. Uh, the reality is that that's what we want it to be. And if it's not good, we're not going to put it out there because there is a ton of information out there right now on creation that is, um, substandard quality. I mean, we could, I'm not going to, you know, call names, obviously that that's, that's crazy. Um, I'm just saying that because of the nature of what we do, we're typically pretty underfunded. Okay. And so especially those who do this on a volunteer basis, um, we tend to be underfunded and when you're underfunded, you can't produce the best quality. You just can't do it. And, um, and so that's why I'm, I'm charging for this in the first place. I think that, uh, those who want access to good quality creation content would be willing to pay a little bit per month for it. And I think for that little bit of commitment per month from everybody, I think, I think we can make something, uh, special. I really think we can something helpful, uh, something special, something that's a good quality. Uh, we believe that uh, anything that we do for the Lord should be the best that we could possibly do. All right, so that is what we're going to try to do with the Creation Academy. Right now, you can't uh, you can't even pay anything yet. You 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 can't get signed up for it yet. But what you can do is go get on the wait list. Go to jointca.co and sign up for the wait list. Uh, you're going to get a free invitation into our Facebook group where you can literally help to build the Creation Academy. All right, you can um, suggest ideas. We'll put some screenshots and things like that in there as we make progress. We're going to have polls in there. Um, I, I, I quite literally want our wait list to help us build the thing. So this is your chance to to get involved, to to be a part of the Creation Academy. And again, we just want you to sign up for that wait list, get in there, and, and start helping us to craft some ideas that you think... Uh, will be helpful. And for that, of course, you get to stay in the Facebook group. That will eventually become a paid feature for, for members who decide to stick around. Uh, but uh, for, for joining early, that is something that you are going to get for free. And so we'll appreciate um, your help in that regard. Well, one one more tiny bit of housekeeping, okay, before we move into um, uh, the main event, so to speak. Um is this new association which we've joined. Uh, it's the International Association for Creation. And I think you can get there by going to associationforcreation.org. And uh, it's it's very exciting. It's, it's headed up um, by some some pretty popular names, um, okay, in, in the creation um, industry. Uh, Eric Hovind, um, um, Dan Biddle, for example, and was founded by a gentleman named Stephen, who I've been in contact with uh, on Facebook, and he reached out to me about it. And uh, boy, it's really exciting. Um, some of the stuff they've got going on. And I'm going to be honest, I, I really don't know that much about it yet. Um, I, I am, I am a member. I, I, I've studied it enough, okay, to know that that membership was going to be a good thing for our ministry. Um, but honestly, past that, I, I don't know much. Um, and so, just be on the lookout for for what. That might mean for the future um, of our ministry. You might see some um, something. I mean, they've got like accreditation programs, kind of thing, so that you can uh, 
know that when you interact with our ministry, you you purchase things from our ministry or, or whatever, that you are uh, doing business with the real deal. Um, that's important, I, I think. And so they've got many... Um, uh, different benefits for members, but I just wanted to announce that we are um, officially a member of the International Association for Creation. And again, what that means going forward, I'm not exactly positive, uh, but I do know I'm excited about it. So um, I- I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do through our uh, association with them. So uh, be in much prayer for that, if you will. All right, so I want to go ahead and move into the content for this week. Uh, again, we're asking the question, who was ancient man? And this chapter in the book, it's chapter 14, again, of the Searching for Adam book, and uh, Reverend Don Landis wrote this chapter, okay? And um, Brother Landis is the uh, president of the Jackson Hole Bible College, and he teaches several classes uh, there also each semester. He also serves as pastor and teacher of Community Bible Church and is the founding chairman of the board of answers in Genesis. So he and a couple of his colleagues uh, helped to write and put together the information in this chapter. Um, and I think it's a really interesting look at the history of, uh, of humanity. Look, um, this is uh, interesting. This is very interesting. And, and I like this study because of the fact that it, it, it really exposes the difference between these two worldviews, between these two paradigms, um, really, of, of, of Earth history. It helps us to see uh, what, what we should be expecting from a world with a, uh, with a past that uh, followed shortly after a creation event, or with human beings having risen out of, um, essentially, out of lower forms of life, as it were, over millions of years. Um, the recorded history of man should look a lot different for each of those worldviews. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we find. So as we talk about the difference between uh, the ancient either genius or ancient uh, primitiveness of, of man, there are a couple things to consider. So the author begins by writing this. He says, evolutionists would have us believe that man started out culturally and technologically primitive and unintelligent. Secular scientists, educators, and media sources assume, teach, and even promote a version of history that has no place for a literal Adam and Eve. And this is so true. And I think one of the saddest realities is that this secular uh, mindset and this 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 secular idea of looking at the world has begun to influence our seminaries and has begun to influence Christendom in a way that uh, I don't think the Lord would would have us to. And of course, what I mean by that is is God has given us in the Bible exactly what He wanted us to know about the past. And as we read our Bible, there is just no room for an evolutionary interpretation. Now, of course, I realize there are those who, who try to put it in there. Uh, but th- that does not mean that there is actually adequate room for it. It just means that somebody has attempted to stuff it in there when there's no uh, good reason. All right? So, uh, you know, what we need to uh, understand is that there are many uh, very, very intelligent people. And I'm not just talking about young earth creationists here, by the way. There are a lot of people in the scientific community, in the intelligent design community, um, 
and even in those who, who, who wouldn't subscribe to intelligent design, who are actually coming away from this um, Darwinian view of looking at the world, and I guess even more specifically, this neo-Darwinian, you know, chemical evolutionary idea of looking at the world. People are starting to realize that, look, there's just no way this thing works. And of course we realize that. Uh, we know because we have trust in God's word that that can't be the, the history of man. That can't be. It, 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 according to the Bible, it just can't be. And so I'm not willing to start with evolutionary presuppositions. I don't think there's a reason to. I think we start with the Bible, and then we form our worldview from there, and we say, look, can we make sense of the world with what we know to be true about our history? And we can do that. And that's, again, the need that this podcast serves to fill. We serve to kind of fill in the details on on, on, on our worldview from a scientific perspective. Um, sometimes we dig into anthropology, historical perspective, something like that. Um, and that's going to ultimately also be the goal of the Creation Academy is to go even more in-depth with high-quality video content, high-quality um workbooks and PDFs and even audio content as well that's going to help us to uh, build this creation worldview, um, build a scientific understanding of our world. So that's what we're working on, uh, and we desire your prayers in doing that. But 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 again, um, the evolutionary story of mankind is just is so um, so dichotomous might be a word, just so so different than. Um, the Bible's recording of early earth history. And funny enough, I mean, the whole point of this article is really to show that reality matches the Bible's timeline. So that's what we're going to continue to see. Now, the author asks, did you ever wonder why there are so many unexplainable feats of wonder and majesty in the ancient world? Has your attention ever been captivated by uh, the, the incredible architecture and artifacts that were engineered by those who lived thousands of years before us? Think of the Great Pyramid, Stonehenge, and Machu Picchu, just to name a few. These are some of the most popular and intensely studied sites in the world today, and yet they're still full of mystery and questions. So as, as we look at this, were these ancient peoples more skilled in certain areas of technology than we are even today? You know, something I'm really guilty of, and I, I, I guess this is because of my, uh, my time here in information technology. That's what I do for a living. Um, I tend to look at technological advancement or the uh, maybe even the intelligence of a people group based on... Um, you know, the, the technological, the electronical engineering that goes into um, their practices and, and, and their systems. And I guess what I mean by that is I work on computers all the time. And so um, I maybe have this stereotype that I need to work on where I, I might look at somebody um, – Maybe they don't have the latest iPhone. I don't know. I mean, I just got it myself a few weeks ago, all right? But, um, you know, maybe I, maybe it's, maybe I get wrapped up, too, in this, in this idea of status, this idea that somehow we've got a bigger social status if we've got a certain kind of computer or if we, if we, do, um, if we do things a little bit differently than somebody else does, if we, if we have technology that somebody else doesn't have. Um, and so uh, I think that we have a tendency to view other cultures who maybe don't have some of these things and to say, well, these guys must be less technologically advanced. But, you know, that might not be the case. They might just be advanced in other ways. 
and we're actually going to going to see this as we go throughout this lesson. And the writer comments, um, and I kind of adapted this a little bit, but but essentially what he says is that this intelligence just doesn't fit in an evolutionary worldview. Uh, this level of intelligence that we see in the ancient world, it just doesn't fit. Ancient cultures actually reveal high intelligence, which again, confirms the biblical worldview. Now, let me give you a couple things. Two contrasting models. We talked about this a little bit, but let's get real specific, okay? Uh, according to the Genesis model, okay, or the biblical model, Adam and Eve were created in God's very likeness, in his image. So since God is supremely wise and intelligent and commanded Adam and Eve to rule over his creation, we can readily assume that they were quite intelligent. Given that they lived for many hundreds of years, they and their descendants would have developed considerable knowledge and skills. All right, so that's one view. Now, here's the other view, evolution. Now, in contrast, the naturalistic evolutionary model depicts the first humanoid beings as brutish creatures looking more like apes than humans. Their behavior would be only slightly more advanced than the rest of the animal world from which they were evolving. Very slowly, these creatures apparently developed communication, discovered fire, learned to grow food, created cultures, and invented the wheel. Now, if this is true, the historical evidence should reveal unsophisticated ancient civilizations. The further we go back in time, the more we should see man primitive in culture and technology. Now, here we have something very interesting as we look at this, as, as we look at this contrasting model. If you remember, um, we've talked about this in a couple episodes so far. One episode was titled, Is Evolution Just a Theory? We talked about it there. And we also talked about it um, in our episode a little while back on genetics and a recent creation. And what we found is that there are three types of tests when it comes to doing scientific experiments. Um, by which that we could potentially um, filter these two worldviews, the, the biblical worldview and the evolutionary um, uh, worldview, okay? So we could um, do a, a type 1, a type 2, or a type 3 experiment. And uh, so a type 3 experiment is the worst kind. A type 3 experiment uh, is essentially useless because it's, 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 it's basically, it makes uh, predictions or it's based upon uh, predictions that, both worldviews would have. So, um, essentially, uh, if we're looking at an issue like, say, uh, the order of the fossil record, well, if you really begin to look at creation theory and evolution theory, um, they have many of the same expectations. Now, not every expectation is the same, but many of the same. Um, and when there are oddities and... Um, things that shouldn't be in one versus the other, uh, then we can make a little bit more sense maybe out of one. For example, um, the fossil record, there are places where some of the, um, where the expected evolutionary order is actually reversed, all right? There are places in the world where it's like that. And that is explained on a, on a catastrophic model. We would expect it to be a certain way, but we would expect that there would be times where that could be different. And so that's um, what we do find. However, and this is important, for the most part, the prediction is the same. For the most part, 
Evolution theory is going, and we talked about this uh, uh, in our episode about the geologic column, one of the first episodes we did back in the beginning. So I don't want to go all through this. The, the point is not to, to, to give you this specific example, but I just want you to see um, that we make the same exact predictions for like the order of the geologic column, for example, uh, as evolutionists do. That's a useless kind of experiment. All right, a type 2 experiment would be this case where we could potentially prove that uh, a model within the evolution theory um, is good or bad, or we could uh, propose whether a model between the in the creation theory um, is good or bad. But uh, a, a good or bad model on either one does nothing to advance the cause. In other words, it does nothing to discern truth between the two different ways of looking at the world. Um, for an example, it would be like evolutionists um, requiring us, okay, to uh, to sequence the genome between humans and chimps to find out how similar they are. We're in our, our worldview. We understand that chimps and humans are not similar. There's no reason for us to do that experiment other than if we're doing it with the sole purpose of exposing flaws in the evolutionary side of doing things. All right, now on the same token... We would never ask the evolutionist to do an experiment attempting to figure out what kinds or how many kinds uh, were on um, Noah's Ark. That, that, that's a useless experiment inside of an evolutionary uh, paradigm. Okay, so that would be like a type 2 kind of experiment. We can find useful information and g gain you know, a, a little bit of truth from each one uh, in particular, but doesn't really do much for comparing the two. All right, now in contrast, a type 1 experiment directly compares the two, and this is the best kind, right? Your type 1 experiment is going to say, look, we make these predictions, evolution theory makes these predictions, which one is true? And I want to suggest that in this, we have a contrasting model. We have a type 1 experiment. Because evolution theory makes completely different predictions about the ancient... Um, uh, technology and the ancient level of sophistication of man than we do as creationists. And so what we're going to find is that I think we can discern from this which worldview better fits the facts. So as we take this journey, consider that in your mind. Now let's look first at some Bible characters. All right, genius through biblical history. Uh, let's look first at the creation. Now, we only have a little bit of information about the pre-flood world, but what we do, I think we can gain some some useful facts from. All right, so let's, let's begin at the very creation. We're talking about Adam. We're talking about the first created man. Did the first created man ever on earth exhibit any intelligence? Well, I think he did. He had power to uh, subdue the earth, for instance. That was his command. Now, remember, this was not a, a military command in that sense because there was no you know wars going on here, okay? Um, but this idea of subdue the earth is this uh, study the earth, study um, study the animals, for instance. Take everything under your under your dominion. You have the intellect. You are you're made higher than everything else. You have the authority and you should subdue it. You should study it. It should be yours. You should take responsibility for it. That was this um, dominion mandate, so to speak, that Adam was given. And we see that he had the power and the intelligence to do that. He also had creativity and originality. You say, why do you say that? 
Well, he was asked to name all the animals. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what that looked like. He may have just been naming a certain um, number of kinds of animals. Uh, but nevertheless, he needed to be creative and original because on day six, he was asked to give the animals certain names. Okay, and so he did that. Now, he also had language and understanding. In fact, the very first poetry that we have recorded uh, in world history, so far as we know, is Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 23, when he's reflecting on uh, the beauty of Eve. So we have poetry, we have language and understanding, we have the ability to, um, uh, to be creative, to be original, to think of new names for things. We have this ability to study uh, the world. We have this ability to reflect on God as creator. This is in the first created man. But it gets better than that. Uh, what about if we move into this post-Adam yet pre-flood Look at the world, all right? Now, now Adam, or excuse me, Abel, rather, was a keeper of flocks. And we see that in uh, Genesis 4 and chapter 2. Cain was, of course, a farmer and even built a city. And we find that in Genesis 4, uh, verses 2 and 17. Now, remember, everybody at this time, just to kind of give you, you know, a, a thorough understanding, is uh, living much longer than we live today. Obviously, you know, we're talking upwards of 900 plus years. So in that course of time, we would expect a certain high degree of intelligence to uh, to manifest. Now, that doesn't mean they had computers. Again, there's a difference between technology and electrical technology, uh, intelligence. And, and, and we, when we think of technology, we think of tech, you know, today in the sense of electric devices and such. But, but technology can also just mean this advancement of in intelligence within a culture. And so I think that uh, you could say that these guys were pretty technologically advanced uh, for their time. Now, Jubal was a musician, presumably because somebody had to make the things in order to play them, uh, presumably he was also an inventor of musical instruments. So we know how to make music to express ourselves. We can build the instruments, not only build them, but we can also play them. And that's as early as Genesis 4 and verse 21. Tubal Cain forged tools from brass and iron. And that implies that he knew how to mine those minerals out of the earth um, and even to use fire to smelt them. And that's in Genesis 4 and verse number 22. Significant. This is this is just incredible uh, technology, and we haven't even left the fourth chapter of Genesis yet. Hey, now what about Noah? What about Noah? Noah, um, I think, displays a tremendous, tremendous amount, and is a tremendous example of this high intelligence of ancient man. Uh, one thing that we can certainly infer is that he had to know something about ship building. Now, uh, you know, a while ago we recorded uh, a podcast episode about our recent trip to the Ark Encounter. And I thought that was really, really a great, great trip. Um, I, I highly recommend you go and I highly recommend you listen to our episode about that so you can um, kind of get an understanding of my best tips um, 
for what to do when you go on that trip. But but something I wanted to point out is that there is a lot, and they admit it up front. They're up front about it. There is a lot of artistic license that uh, they have to take there with things. And I really enjoy looking at the part about uh, Noah and and this this concept of ship building. Of course, the Ark is not your normal everyday ship. Okay, it, 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 of course, God gave the dimensions and, and God possibly gave even further instructions of what we find in the Word of God. But the point is that this, um, uh, this ship was completely different than anything that had ever, ever been created at that time. Um, and of course, um, it was made specifically for traveling on the high seas. So, uh, and, and to survive the effects of a global flood, it was very strong. So it stands to reason that Noah, um, was able to bring in other people. And this is one of the things that they showed there. Noah had vast knowledge of shipbuilding and he was maybe even to bring in other people, such as contractors and things like that, who would help. Hey, I find that even if somebody's not on board with with your mission, if they're getting paid, they might do their part to help make it a reality. So it's very likely that Noah had um, acquired some partnerships and maybe even had friends. Of course, we know him and his sons built a boat, but it's possible that people built materials for him and, and brought them to him and, and helped with part of that. And of course, Noah had to know how to plan and organize the whole thing. He essentially not only had to be a shipbuilder for this amount of time, but also had to be a general contractor. So, um, you know, we need to give uh, Noah a bit of credit here for, for the work that was done as a shipbuilder uh, during this time. And so, of course, we know that God gave Noah certain instructions around how to do that, but there was a lot that presumably um, he would have needed to know past what's in the biblical data. And so, of course, maybe God did give that to him and it just didn't get written down, or uh, maybe just kind of God gave him that, uh, or the ability to acquire that knowledge of what uh, would be needed and and the skills to do that. Of course, he would have to have knowledge of animals. Um knowledge of the food requirements of these animals. We are estimating somewhere, again, I'm going to kind of be vague, but somewhere between 2,000 to 6,700 or so um, animals on on the ark. I've seen numbers anywhere within that that range. I I don't think we need to assume anything more than that, though. I think that's been um, pretty definitively reduced as far as the kinds go, the biblical kinds. There were somewhere above 2,000, somewhere under 7,000, 6,700 or something like that. Like that okay, so um, uh, we would see that Noah would need to understand how to store all those animals and how to properly care for them, how to store and ration food, how to deal with fresh water, how to get air supply, um, how to deal with human waste disposal. So these are important details that uh, don't seem to be explicitly stated in the Word of God. Uh, of course, they're not explicitly stated in the Word of God, but but then the question is, well, did, did Noah receive any special instruction from God on them? I'm inclined to think no. I'm inclined to think that he was just simply given the uh, wisdom and the intelligence by God to be able to um, confer with others and to learn for himself how these things would need to work. It's likely that Noah was a very, very smart inventor. And so that's a consideration. So what about post-flood biblical examples? Uh, We have Joseph, all right? Joseph had wisdom and a godly character. And, you know, isn't it so true? We find that when somebody exercises wisdom, when somebody does what they do with the Lord's best interests at heart and at mind, God really blesses them. Well, they faced Tumult and, and, and trouble sometimes, of course. If you just look at the life of Joseph. Joseph dealt with years and years of, of not understanding, uh, of terrible circumstances, but never once in the Bible do we find that he got 
bitter. I don't think anything bad, if I'm remembering this right, I don't think there's anything bad recorded in the Bible about Joseph. Joseph remembered the Lord, and the Lord remembered Joseph. He was with him the whole time. And God blessed him. He obviously had uh, skills of organization, of, of, of storage, and food distribution. He knew how to run the government there. All right, He maintained organizational control. He maintained governmental control. He had to deal with this massive... I mean, if you if you just have a research exactly what went on um, during the time of the Egyptian famine and everything, he had it all figured out. I mean, he was able to maintain. I mean, he instituted like a flat tax, and I'm not necessarily advocating that. I'm just saying that he instituted a flat tax. He instituted government buyback programs and all these things. He had he had a good idea of organizational and governmental control. Uh, Bezalel, of course, and the tablet and the uh, tabernacle. Excuse me. Um, goldsmithing, silversmithing, stonework was involved. Carpentry, uh, of course, the building of the tent, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, the furniture, uh, even the utensils, the golden lampstand, the altars, the labor, the garments. All of this in the middle of the wilderness. Isn't that something? Uh, they needed knowledge of how to build and how to use the proper tools and to work with. The materials. I mean, the biblical data is just rich, just rich with with the high intelligence of ancient man. How about Solomon? He was the wisest man to have ever lived. God said that there was none wiser than Solomon, and none that would be born after Solomon any wiser. Of course, I think we can make an exception for Christ, but uh, otherwise... People traveled from all over the ancient Near East just to hear him speak, and this is something confirmed um, by many extra-biblical resources as well. Hezekiah's engineers, man, these guys were smart. Uh, the the water engineering that was done back in that day was was impeccable. Uh, there's a special underground tunnel. It's underneath Jerusalem. Uh, it was put in place there, of course, for threat of invasion. Um, we know now that it was capable of supporting a population of around 2,500 people, stretches 1,750 feet under Jerusalem from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam. Okay, according to the Bible, Hezekiah's engineers chiseled the tunnel. Get this from both ends, connected at some point between the two ends. We could say in the middle, possibly, um, but it, it wasn't even done in a straight line. We had basically one group that started on one end, and another group started on the other end, and they met somewhere in between. And the knowledge that had to go into engineering that and and, and planning that, uh, while not understandable, uh, or or, or I should say it maybe like this. While not impossible from today's standards, of course, we could probably do that with no problem today. Uh, Seeing how it could be done back then, especially if man is supposed to be um, uh, primitive by this point, is certainly, certainly a stretch. What about uh, from an extra biblical standpoint, okay, outside of the Bible? We've got the civilization of Sumer, okay, after uh, we think this was right after the Tower of Babel. Uh, We have this city known as Erech. All right, and this is recorded in, of course, the um, Epic of Gilgamesh. All right, and this city is known for its large structures uh, and its massive, uh, apparently impenetrable walls. All right, so uh, right after the Tower of Babel incident, uh, we find already some high intelligence coming into place. Now, again, this is not high technology in, uh, of course, the way that we mean technology, we mean electronic devices and things like that. But as far as working with natural structures and the natural world, this is some pretty intense stuff. 
the Minoans, of course, they lived circa 2150 to 1450 BC. Uh, the writer writes this, the ancient palace in Knossos, uh, the town of uh, Akrotiri, and buildings of Zom- uh, Zominthos, excuse me for not getting some of these names right, um, contain architectural marvels that are nearly unparalleled in their time. Features include plumbing, drainage, use of light reflection, earthquake resistance, massive structures, and strategic location. In fact, the town of Akrotiri had the capability of running fresh water into every building and also had a sewage system throughout the entire town connecting to bathrooms within the buildings, even connecting to the second floors. This is 2150 to 1450 B.C., Okay, the toilets of the town had an ingenious design. The waste would fall down a clay pipe to the subterranean sewage system below where water from the town's drains flushed it into a cesspit. The pipes were designed in such a way that a siphon effect drew the smells down the pipes away from the lavatory. This type of system was at least a thousand years, quote, ahead of its time, unquote. The Minoans also built their structures with earthquake resistance, um, meaning they had these wooden beams, right, that would go in between the windows and the walls and even the doorways that would help to absorb shock. Obviously, some great engineering we find there. Uh, in La Bastida, okay, in Spain, uh, and this was built around uh, 2100 to 2000, BC, somewhere in there, um, the city was a fortress, okay, with at least six defensive towers. Uh, These were extensive walls that stood 20 feet high and 10 feet thick. Aside from the Minoans, no other civilization in Europe has been found with such intimidating structures. The front gate uh, led into, of course, of the city, led into a courtyard where enemy invaders would be trapped and attacked by men shooting from the towers. The towers and walls themselves were built with strong lime mortar, holding the walls so tightly together that they were impermeable and so sheer that there was no way for attackers to climb them. What about the Great Pyramid in Egypt? The Great Pyramid in Egypt. Well, it has a number of very interesting Features And, of course, uh, this is just uh, mind-boggling to me, the amount of design that went into the Great Pyramid. Uh, first of all, it is aligned with true north to within 360th of a degree, with its other size aligning with true east, west, and south. This makes it more precisely aligned with true north than any other building on Earth, including modern structures. Second, the pyramid's base, covering 13 acres, is only seven-eighths of an inch out of level. The sides at the base of the pyramid are almost equal to each other. The largest difference in length is not even eight inches. The mortar used on the pyramid was stronger than typical rock, but left less than one-fiftieth of an inch between the stones. The Great Pyramid, along with the two other pyramids at Giza, is astronomically aligned with the constellation Orion. The builders used an estimated 1 to 2 million blocks of limestone, averaging 2.5 to 15 tons each. The largest is 80 tons. The pyramid rose to a height of 481 feet, and its volume is approximately 90 million cubic feet. More than 30 Empire State buildings could construct could be constructed with its masonry. 
what an engineering marvel. Even today, we, we are just amazed at how such a structure could be built. And yet, we look back on ancient man, and we say they should be brutish. We say they're made just a little higher than the apes. There is a, a massive jump, a massive jump to be made between any chimpanzee I've ever seen and the creation of the pyramids. I mean, just think about that. Just think about that. The closest ancestor to us possible in an evolutionary way of looking at the world is a chimpanzee. I don't see chimps building pyramids anytime soon. It's crazy to think about. It's absolutely... It's mind-blowing to think about the differences. And I'm a little bit at a loss for words, really, just thinking about it, how how different God made us. What It, it really saddens me. It grieves my heart uh, that there are those who just can't see the difference. Satan really has blinded the eyes of men. That's the truth. Unfortunately, this blindness is our own doing. God says that from the beginning of the creation, uh, of course, all things are seen. Um, we are the the things that are uh, made are understood by the things um, that were made. Okay, and um, even even in fact, his eternal Godhead can be seen. And it's just amazing to to think about how many how many miss this, how many are missing out on on heaven, missing out on a life eternal with God because of this uh, because of this blindness makes me mad with the human condition. It makes me mad at the devil. It makes me mad. Uh, it just, it just, it's just upsetting to me. And so we need to do our best to share Christ and to share truth with the lost world, to really help them to see the difference. We are not made a little higher than the apes. We're just not. That's not what the evidence shows. What about Stonehenge uh, there in England? It's one of the finest examples of archaeoastronomy, uh, by which structures were built with the intent of aligning them with objects of astronomical significance. Uh, again, it was aligned to uh, the summer and winter solstices, as well as the spring and fall equinoxes and lunar movements. These alignments are incredibly sophisticated, even though its construction is thought to uh, predate the Eastern Mediterranean, Egyptian, and Greek cultures. Isn't that incredible? Uh, besides the unbelievable astronomical alignments, even moving the stones to the site of construction was a huge task. It's still a mystery. Stonehenge is made up of different types of stones. At one point, it had 60 blue stones, uh, each weighing four tons. The blue stones appear to have come from Wales. Get this, 240 miles away. Other stones, called Sarsen stones, probably added later, formed the inner ring and outermost ring, a type of local sandstone, uh, the largest sergeant, uh, excuse me, Sarsen, a uh, stone weighs around 40 tons. Archaeologists still today don't know how they did it. And then in ancient China, we also have some fabulous examples of the genius of ancient man. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to get this name uh, right at all, okay? <laughs> so um, just look past that. But uh, Qin Shi Huangdi was the first emperor of China. Uh, he standardized coins weights and measures, as well as a writing system 
throughout China. He also built roads and canals to increase the flow and rate at which trade was conducted. His network of roads stretched approximately 4,000 miles and included some roads up to 40 feet wide, complete with a lane reserved for imperial members. Uh, of course, he was responsible for kind of the first iteration okay, of the Great Wall of China. Um, something else that he is known for is his own tomb. Uh, now, uh, let me just kind of give you uh, an understanding of this now. Uh, his mausoleum alone, the mausoleum alone, was a large pyramid mound, uh, rose over the whole landscape of, of, of the tomb, 400 feet. Um, but of course, it's what is beneath the surface, all right, that is what amazes modern historians. Now, uh, this has not been excavated, okay, um, uh, for reasons of the fact that they, they, they don't believe that modern archaeological techniques are up to snuff, <laughs> okay? Uh, they don't even think that we are going to be able to preserve what we find down there when we find it, uh, the, the way that things are currently, okay? So, uh, supposedly, this underground chamber um, is 1,600 by 1,700 feet, equal to 580 basketball courts, um, and filled with incredible treasures, uh, supposedly rivers of mercury, pavilions of gold, and pearls on the ceiling to represent the night sky. And uh, again, as I mentioned, the Chinese have absolutely refused to excavate uh, this, uh, this site until archaeology has reached a level capable of preserving whatever remains inside. And the author comments here, just think about that. Our, our, our advanced modern technology isn't yet trusted enough to uncover the marvels created thousands of years ago, supposedly by less advanced people. It seems to me uh, at, 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 at a face value, just examination of the evidence here, uh, that to, to assume an evolutionary anthropology, uh, you've, you've, you've got to make some pretty significant leaps in logic when looking at human history. What about ancient Babylon? Uh, recently, Dr. Matthew Ossendraver, uh, a professor at Humboldt University in Berlin, made an amazing archaeological uh, uh, astronomy discovery when studying an ancient Babylonian tablet circa 350 to 50 BC. He found that the tablet indicates the ancient Babylonians may have used a type of pre-calculus mathematics to describe the motion of the planet Jupiter. Now, calling it a highly modern concept, uh, the professor describes how the ancient Babylonians used a graph of velocity against time to calculate the distance Jupiter traveled in the night sky from its appearance to its position 60 days later. By using the known technique of splitting a trapezoid into two smaller ones of equal area, they could discern how long it took Jupiter to travel half the distance. This type of mathematics, as far as we know, was not used or known until nearly 15 centuries later. But now how about the ancient New World? The New World cultures, uh, of course that would be the uh, Americas and, and such, right over here in the West. New World cultures have uh, taken longer to rise. This makes sense due to um, how far people had to travel after the flood and the dispersion at the Tower of Babel, right? 
It's almost as if the American civilizations were on their own separate timeline, one that re-collided with the old world when Columbus reached America in 1492. So here are just a couple examples. I'm in in Chichen Itza, uh, Mexico. El Castillo, or the castle, is the central pyramid-like structure at the center of the city. It looms at an impressive 79 feet. However, it is most famous for an event that occurs twice a year at the spring and fall equinoxes. At each time, uh, uh, at these times during the year, the setting sun creates a snaky-looking shadow along the stairs. And uh, he's got a picture of that in the book, and it's just, it's really, really fascinating. I mean, you could tell it was intentional. Uh, it, the, 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 the stairs light up, and they look like a snake, and at the bottom of it, there's a head and everything. It's, it's 100% intentional that it was done that way, all right? Uh, especially considering that it is uh, to be done at the spring and fall equinox. It's very, very cool. The other building that displays archaeoastronomy is uh, El Caracol, also known as the Observatory. This structure lacks the movements of the planet, or excuse me, tracks the movements rather of the planet Venus, which is actually a difficult planet to track due to its uh, appearance in the morning. Of course, then it disappears and reappears in the evening. Uh, the architecture of the Incas. Uh, Cyclopean architecture refers to the style of construction that involves cutting stones to fit perfectly together without the use of mortar. All right. Uh, this term was first used for walls and structures built by the Mycenaean civilization in Greece, 1400 to 1200 BC. The observatory, or Temple of the Sun, at uh, Machu Picchu, appears to have been built specifically for astronomical observation. The windows seem to align with and calculate the summer solstices as well as the rising of several important constellations. Uh, the stones at uh, Sacsayhuaman are, uh, I think I said that right, Sacsayhuaman, Sacsayhuaman, I think is how we would say that, uh, are flawlessly cut. Uh, and f- by the way, I did look up these names uh, <laughs> before coming on here uh, and, and doing this, but I, I'm just a country boy, all right? So uh, you forgive me if I don't get some of these names pronounced exactly right, all right? Um, but the stones there are, are flawlessly cut and, and fit together so perfectly that not even a blade of grass can fit between them. The stones used, isn't that incredible? Not even a blade of grass can fit between these stones that are so flawlessly put together, yet have no mortar. The stones used in the structure are extremely large as well, some weighing over 150 tons. The largest is 29 feet high and is an estimated 360 tons. The best part, the quarry from which these stones were cut is about 10 miles away. It's, uh, for all intents and purposes, I mean, it's a mystery. Uh, even how uh, some of the transportation um, was w- w- was carried out to to get some of the building materials from one location to another uh, in some of these building projects, let alone the actual nature of the building projects uh, themselves. Uh, truly, truly, uh, God's uh, design is just wonderful. It's just absolutely w- wonderful, and 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 the human um, being made in the image of God. Uh, can take us so much further uh, than than evolutionary science would 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 like for us to to think. All right, what about before we close out here? We're almost done. Some um, incredible ancient artifacts. 
how about the uh, Lycurgus uh, chalice? The Lycurgus chalice. 1,600-year-old uh, Roman artifact is what it is. And uh, it first came to light in the 1950s and immediately, immediately puzzled archaeologists. Now, this cup, it, it's so cool looking. It changes color based on where light hits it. Uh, so it's green if the light comes from the front and red if the light is behind it. Um, and the way it does this is through nanotechnology. 1,600-year-old Roman artifact, yes, using nanotechnology. Uh, the Romans produced the cup's feathers or features um, by impregnating tiny particles of gold and silver into the glass. They were somehow able to crush and grind the gold-silver to the molecular scale, 50 nanometers in diameter. That is more than a thousand times smaller than a grain of table salt. Hmm. And it works like this. When hit uh, with the light, the electrons in the cup would vibrate in a way that made the chalice appear a certain color, depending on the observer's position. If liquid was in the cup, it would change the vibrations, which would thereby change the color of the cup. And some think this might have been used to detect uh, certain um, poisons and, 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 and certain other things, you know, so that people who tried to contaminate the... Um, the uh, ruler of the day, okay, uh, this would be a way to kind of guard against that. So that's possible. Um, how about ancient metal coatings? Um, ancient guilders had a variety of techniques, one of which used mercury as a sort of glue to apply thin films of metal to statues and other objects. This film of metal was so thin, it surpasses what modern scientists use for DVDs, solar cells, electronic devices, and other products. These techniques were used throughout the Dark Ages, quote, right? It seems that uh, the artisans reached the point where they cannot get any more skilled and their mastery cannot be matched today even with our sophisticated technology. One final example of ancient artifacts and this is just fascinating. Uh, the Antikythera mechanism. The Antikythera mechanism. It was discovered in AD 1900 in a 2nd century BC Roman shipwreck off the coast of the Greek island of Antikythera. It was believed to have contained 37 gears at one point. 30 of them still remain. As far as we know, this many gears was not used in a device again until the 17th century. This very complex mechanism is able to predict the movements of the sun, moon, the 12 zodiac signs, and maybe even the five planets known to the Greeks. It tracked the sorrow cycle, period of solar and lunar eclipses, the metonic cycle, based on the Greek calendar, and the calypic cycle, a lunar calendar which included four metonic cycles, perhaps even tracked the four-year cycle of the Olympic Games. What an engineering marvel, discovered in AD 1900 in a second century Roman shipwreck, and it already had the technology to, uh, to track all these Wonderful things, the zodiac signs, the Olympic cycle, Greek calendars, um, metonic cycles, so lunar cycles. I, I, I'm, man, absolutely incredible. The, the genius of supposedly primid, uh, primitive um, ancient uh, ancestors. People groups that exist without advanced technology still exhibit the innate intelligence that God created each of them with. Of course, now we're talking about um, what would be, quote, uh, primitive, unquote, okay, people uh, of the past and even of the present. Um, we got to realize that not everybody lives in 
America. Okay, not everybody lives in Europe. Not everybody lives, uh, you know, in in the more um, in the more advanced sections of the world. Not every country is a capitalist country. Okay, not every um, not everybody has the freedoms and rights and the conveniences that that, that we do. And I think the older you get, kind of the more. Um, in some cases, the more aware of that you become, but then in other cases, the more numb to it you become as well. And so sometimes you just don't even think about the fact that uh, some cultures, even on Earth today, are are, are living in a way that uh, that our particular culture, if you just hit the rewind button, you know, might have been living hundreds of years ago. So we got to really consider that. But back to the point I made uh, in the beginning of recording this lesson. We have to detach ourselves, right, from this idea that uh, electronics and certain, um, you know, technologies is equivalent to the um, the acumen or to the intelligence of the people of the day or the people of that particular area. Um, this is especially, you know, hard for, for for somebody like me, especially being in information technology and such. But uh, you know, I mean, to to to, to imagine life uh, with a flip phone instead of an iPhone right now seems absurd. Um, and I, I'm I'm not trying to be um, insensitive here or or anything like that. In fact, I'm trying to make the opposite point. Like like uh, that convicts my heart, right? To know that uh, how different would life be right now if I had a flip phone still instead of an iPhone. And yet here we're talking about people who don't have any of these modern technologies, but they're still created in the image of God. And that means they're still very intelligent. Here are just two examples, uh, or, or it might actually just one example, excuse me. Um, but to kind of finish introducing this thought, though, uh, the cultures of these people are, are filled with purpose and meaning. They still exhibit that intelligence that God gave them. Their skills are different from ours, and, and yet they still proclaim cleverness, problem-solving, and intellect. Those are the author's words. And I really like that. Um, consider this example, the Hadza people of Tanzania. Uh, I'm quoting now, and I think that uh, in this section, uh, the author here is quoting uh, from a book that uh, another writer uh, had written about these people. Quote, though they neither farm nor build cities, these people have lived successfully off the land for thousands of years. For Anwas, a Hadza Hadza uh, tribesman, navigation is no problem. He has lived all his life in the bush. He can start a fire, twirling a stick, a stick between his palms in less than 30 seconds. He can converse with a honey guide bird, whistling back and forth, and be led directly to a teeming beehive. He knows everything there is to know about the bush and virtually nothing of the land beyond. Unquote. And that's just one example. But, but, but it's just marvelous to think that even though the intelligence might be uh, perceived in a little bit of a, a different way with these people, it nevertheless shows how intelligent they are, how they've been made in the image of an almighty God. And uh, it's incredible to think about how God can pay attention to every single one of us. At the same time, uh, just that's just a marvel to me. But of course, that's nothing for uh, an all-powerful, all-knowing, uh, all-loving God, uh, ever-present God, and He's always there for us. The author writes here in conclusion, the incredible genius, creativity, 
skills, and accomplishments of mankind throughout the ages are all a testament to God's glorious design. Adam was created to bring God glory, and although man has fallen, he cannot help but declare the glory of God merely through his natural created intelligence. I like that. That's a good phrase. Uh, he, he just cannot help to display the glory of God. And I love that. I love that because uh, as an apologist, as somebody who, who regularly deals with people who don't believe in God, who say there's just no evidence for God. I, I was watching uh, a YouTube uh, or, or a Facebook Live video the other night, and it was a, an apologist who was uh, at a university. And this particular apologist uh, certainly does not agree with our persuasions about the age of the earth and, and things of that nature. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I appreciate his ministry. I appreciate his work. And he was being questioned by a self-proclaimed uh, physicist. Uh, he said, show me evidence for the creation. Now, of course, the apologist knew that the answer that he gave was not sufficient, but I think the reason he answered this way was to kind of show the uh, the show the obvious to somebody who was looking uh, for the more profound. He said, "Show me evidence for the creation." And the apologist just looked back at him and said, "You're standing in it. It's right here." Now. Of course, we know that as we dissect a statement like that, and we, we dig further into it, we understand that you can interpret this world through evolutionary eyes or through biblical eyes. We understand that. We know even further than that, that we don't have a choice. There's no such thing as neutrality. When we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, when God has entered into our lives, God has saved us from our sins and saved us from ourselves. It is not turning over a new leaf. It's not, I, I, I've seen the light. It's not, uh, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to work and, and be good now. It's not that at all. Uh, one of my favorite uh, apologists, Ravi Zacharias, I love the way he puts this. He said, Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. And I'm going to add something to that. He didn't even come to change people's minds. What he come to do was to make dead people live, to make dead people live. And when you realize the significance of that, what you begin to find is that somebody who is unregenerate, somebody who does not know God is just dead. The noetic effects of sin have corrupted their mind. He's not, he can't think right. That's why Proverbs 1, 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, right? It, it, we, we have to have this respect and this reverence for the Lord before we can even begin to understand the knowledge and the intellect that God has given us. And so uh, that has many implications on our lives. That has implications on the kind of um, apologetics we do. It has implications in many areas. But more than anything, more than anything, what it does is it, it puts this clear boundary between what somebody who is not thinking in biblical terms uh, what kind of story they will construct about the histories of the past, and then what uh, a Bible believer would construct about the histories of the past. Now, does that mean that there's never going to be some form of a... Um, how do we want to say this? Uh, does that mean that everybody's going to agree on the age of the earth issue? Who is a Christian? No. It, it, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I do think, and I will stand firmly behind it, I do think that the only tenable biblical position is... 
the position I hold. I, I really, if I didn't think that, I wouldn't hold that, okay? Um, I, I think I can be dogmatic about the age of the earth. I don't think I can be salvation dogmatic about it, and I'm not. We've talked about that on this podcast, but... But I do think that um, somebody who is, um, maybe we should say it this way, somebody who is regenerated and saved, all right? Somebody who has been saved by the glorious grace of God is going to be able to look at the world with biblical eyes and come to to use biblical presuppositions to understand the world around us. But somebody who is unregenerate is not going to be able to do that. So I just kind of want to leave you with those thoughts. Uh, this creation that we're standing in, God made it. God made everything. God made the whole world. God made you. God made me, and he made us special this morning. He loves you, and he wants nothing more than to be in a eternal relationship with you. Are, are you going to call on his... Are you listening to this? Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you don't know God. Maybe maybe you've been playing church. Maybe maybe you've just been a, a warm in a church pew for years and you've just never really considered what it means to be saved. Look, I don't know you today, uh, but uh, if that's you, I'll, I'll pre- you'd reach out to our ministry. H- head over to, why, uh, to, to, to stevestram.com slash y-trust-dash God. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you don't know God, you need to head over there, learn a little bit about this man that we call Jesus Christ, and um, he'll change your life. He will supernaturally, miraculously change your life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you so much for one more opportunity, Lord, to study your word, to study your world, to learn more about you, to learn more about your creation, to learn more about... This, this image of God that you placed in us to learn more about our history. God, when we look at uh, the world, and, and as Christians, we look at the world and we say, everything lines up. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for allowing us to be able to view the world through the very lens that you would have it uh, to be viewed from. Does that mean that we're going to have right ideas about everything? No. Of course, it, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean, Lord, that you have the power to convict our hearts and convict our souls and to show us truths from your word that contradict long-held beliefs. And, Lord, you have the power to change our minds and to change our hearts. Father, we love you, and we just want to say thank you again for this wonderful opportunity to serve you. What a blessing it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. A little long this time, but uh, I felt it was important to go through some of these concepts. And uh, hey, I just wanted to say thanks for joining us. We're we're doing good. We got uh, uh, um, uh, well over 2,000 downloads now on the podcast, which doesn't sound like a lot to some people, but hey, it, it sounds like a lot to me. Uh, if anybody's got any uh, degree of help from this podcast, then I am uh, thrilled. If even one person would listen. So uh, I, I thank you again for joining us. This week, right here on the Creation Academy, join us next week. Uh, just two more lessons to go in the Biblical Origin for humani- of Humanity series. All right, thanks. Bye-bye.